Welcome back to another episode of Radical Reflections. Thank you as always for tuning in again this week. And this week, I'm going to go out and say this, say it on a limb. I feel we're covering the most important international issue for the contemporary left as it stands right now. China's role in international relations, how its national government operates, and how people react to that government is hotly contested. People have a lot of different opinions about it. And even amongst the left, this issue seems to be up for debate. So look, this is an episode I'm really glad to be covering. This is an episode that really needs our attention. So look, it's absolutely my pleasure to bring on Dave Ching of the Chiao Collective, an organization and a collective group of people who are doing a whole lot of good right now to really rebut the imperialistic, jingoistic narrative of the West towards China and lay down a strong defense of the country while doing so. And the 90 million members who've built the Communist Party of China and continue to deliver on the world stage. So yeah, I'm really glad to present this, and I hope you enjoy. Over to Dave. Here we go. Okay, mate, it's an absolute pleasure to bring you on Radical Reflections and talk about such an important issue. But before we get delving into all kinds of variants of the subject matter, do you want to just introduce yourself, give yourself a bit of background check, and really let listeners know who we're listening to today? Yeah, that sounds great. So I'm Dave Chin. I'm a member of the Chow Collective. Chow Collective, in case you don't know, uh, we came up maybe about half a year ago as the U.S. aggression on China was really ramping up. And we got pretty big, kind of surprisingly, quite a lot for just a, a, a collective that really focuses on fighting U.S. aggression on China and also seeing what leftists in the West can learn from the experience of the of, of, of China. As for me, like my own personal background, I'm a Marxist-Leninist and organizer, and I started studying socialism about two years ago. I'm also a young professional uh, who has some kind of STEM job, and there's three big reasons why I joined the Chow Collective. One, and this just kind of gives background around, you know, the political affiliations and kind of why why Chow Collective. Because of China's peaceful rise, it's under attack in the new Cold War. This is literally the biggest conflict that's upcoming in the next few decades. And just like how the Cold War shaped the era between the 50s and 80s, uh, we're seeing that now. And it's incredibly important that leftists unlearn their leftist imperialism and prioritize combating Western imperialism. Because today, what I see mostly is unprincipled and uninvestigated critique of China that coincides with war hawk narratives and manufactures consent for, for this upcoming uh, new Cold War. And two is that China is socialist, people-centered, scientific, and peace-loving. So China it's the second largest economy in the world, and it continues to grow faster than than the West economically. And it's a contender on the world stage because it's socialist. It's a threat because it's socialist. It's people-centered. It's scientific and peace-loving. So we'll get more into that, but in the West, we need to recognize a true friend. And that solidarity with the Chinese people is solidarity with the Chinese nation. The Chinese nation is led by the Communist Party of China, which is a Marxist-Leninist party. As leftists, we have a lot to learn from the principles and the experience of how Marxist-Leninists apply the science of Marxism to the national conditions of China. It's a rich history and an existing practice and certainly one that I'm still learning about. And three, as a Chinese-American, I have a special role. So, you know, in our context, I think a lot of people know about how the model minority myth is is anti-black. It's like historically it was used to discredit the black liberation movement in the U.S. What people forget is that it was also deeply anti-communist with a lot of propaganda at that time to discourage Asians who were fighting for national liberation uh, to move towards Western liberal democracy instead of communism. So in America, there's still a deep strain of this anti-communism in the Chinese diaspora. And we often act as spokespeople, spokespeople to legitimize Western chauvinism and Orientalism, and also sadly, internalized white supremacy. 
that most Chinese diaspora grew up with. So that's one choice. We could do that. Or we can combat those trends and build a revolutionary party with other oppressed people and fight this continuation of the model minority myth that's used to legitimize U.S. aggression on China. So that's kind of, yeah, my background. Well, look, if listeners weren't clear already why I was so keen to bring you on the show and indeed broadcast the Chiao Collective on the show, you've demonstrated it there verbatim 101. I was hanging on to every word you were saying there and there's so much to be brought out of your initial introduction there that we can bring forward and really lay the foundations for this episode. So I really thank you firstly for putting that all on the table and bringing your background of who you are and who the Chiao Collective are accordingly. And look, just building on all that now and really getting into the content for the episode, I think a good way to get us going is to talk about national governance in China. It doesn't take (laughs) much more than the average eye to see how that's been really documented in a really jingoistic manner right now. So do you want to discuss how the Communist Party of China really orientates with its citizens and the relationship with them to really get this episode underway? Anything you want to bring out here is extremely welcome to get us going. Yeah, sure. So... One thing just to kind of frame the CPC is, so the CPC sees itself as inheriting a much larger mission in the context of Chinese history, which they often refer to as national rejuvenation. So what they're referring to is after the 100 years of humiliation when China was a, quote, semi-colonial, semi-feudal state, like that was a period where Previously, China had always been one of the you know, most prosperous, most civilized, most richest areas of culture in the world. And it went on a decline because it didn't, looking back, the CPC will say that they didn't learn from what was going on in the outside world, which is part of their effort to reform and open up currently. But with this national rejuvenation after its period of decline, China did some deep soul searching to figure out like why, what, what they need, what they needed to do to change. And actually the answer that China found in order to continue to be Chinese, but to be Chinese in the modern era was socialism with Chinese characteristics. So that's this greater mission that the CPC sees itself as inheriting, actually, that's been going on for for much longer than the CPC has been around. So that's kind of the context. And as a Marxist-Leninist party, their class struggle is the primary like agent of history. So how the CPC sees itself, it sees itself as being with the masses and the most advanced elements of where the people are at and inspiring them into action. So today, zooming forward to today, like the CPC. It's a 90 million member party uh, out of China, which has a population of 1.4 billion. So that means roughly there's one out of 20 people are are in the party. To kind of get this picture of, you know, how today the CPC interacts with, with the people. If you have an organization that has 60 people and there's three CPC members there, there's going to be a primary level party organization that's going to be organizing people there, talking with people and understanding like how their needs coordinate with the direction of China at large. If you've ever done any organizing, tenant organizing or union organizing, these are the people who are talking to everybody kind of understanding what their needs are, um, giving them the courage to understand how they can act in solidarity with each other. And that's kind of the role of the party. That the party is the mechanism through which like the people's needs are prioritized. So it's it's a different framework from the Western framework where they kind of see the appropriate way of governance as being a fight between different interests. Instead, the party, through having a unified objective and understanding of what what is it that people need right now, like what's going to immediately improve their lives right now and in the future, kind of combining that short-term prioritization with that long-term vision of 
leading to socialism and communism. Some of the kind of like very specific things that the party does is they really emphasize ref- continually reforming the party. So they saw how in the Soviet experience that found one path and stuck to it. Uh, the CPC is constantly reforming itself. In in the ML terms, you might say like they, they combat dogmatism and they seek truth from facts. In lay people's terms, it might be understood as innovate or die. They do self-crit. They have anti-corruption campaigns within the party called, they call it caging tigers and swatting flies. Just to list them out real quick, you know, they have universal health insurance. They have a modern transportation system. They have, they're on track to eliminate extreme poverty by the end of 2020. There's 90% home ownership in China. The life expectancy basically doubled over the past 70 years or more, actually. They're able to achieve these outcomes because they have a socialist system. And the CPC is there as a mechanism that to quickly implement the needs. And because there's that one kind of unifying factor, they can make changes really quick. They can experiment with what works and what doesn't and scientifically improve over time, which is the socialist process. And look, there's so much to get out of that answer, but what you're demonstrating here is how democracy works under a proletarian state and a communist party leading the masses. There's obviously a lot to go through when you discuss China in this format and you brought out a lot out in the answer. But in essence, democracy reaches a higher stage in a socialist state run by a communist party than we can only dream of in the Western world. Take any example you've just mentioned there. This is a party made up of 90 million members, which gives laborers a direct stake in the economy for one, that assesses both the short and the long-term needs of the people and meets those standards accordingly. Let's take any contemporary example from the 2008 financial crash where the state bailout did not impact on citizens in the way it does in the Western world where we're continually paying that back through austerity measures or indeed the front and center example of the coronavirus pandemic where the far reaches of Chinese state infrastructure do not need to negotiate with CEOs, bankers, billionaires, hedge fund managers to implement reforms in the interests of the people, building hospitals, redirecting factory production to make PPE and essential medical supplies, or indeed transporting that medical expertise all across the world, Europe in particular. Democracy should never mean competition between classes, but instead valuing those who use their labor to create all the wealth within a society, and this is what China does. But look, let's stay on the topic of national democracy in China, which obviously plays a huge part of the Western jingoistic narrative towards China in terms of its so-called authoritarian rule, etc. So if you want to bring out specific examples of how proletarian democracy really delivers for Chinese citizens through the leadership of the Communist Party, this will go a long way to debunking the narrative which Western media outlets propped up by private ownership, propped up by billionaire ownership, come at this issue and really accentuate a lot of the conversations we've had so far? Yeah, sure. So when understanding proletarian democracy, one of the key things is just understanding what socialism is. So, you know, as a socialist country in China, the workers are in command and not the capitalists. So when you look at their policies, like the things that they're able to accomplish, they're able to accomplish it because they're prioritizing the people over the capitalists. Um, and kind of just a quick proof you can see of that is actually just how there's tremendous economic growth in China. So it, it grows between 6 to 10% per year in the past 20 years compared with the U.S. around 2%. And that's because the, you know, just as an example, you look at the modern transportation system in China, it takes a package five to seven days to send it across in the States, but the slowest pace in China is one day. So China built this system because they invested in everybody's wealth and not just the capitalist wealth. And you kind of multiply that kind of thinking across every industry, and that's why they're able to get three to 5% more growth. Like I think there's often a conflation between thinking that more profit means more wealth. But actually, more profit just means more hoarding and like an underutilization of, of our wealth. And that's, that's, I think, something that people often get wrong. So kind of in that framework with proletarian democracy, there 
is an element where the the state will act, will prioritize workers' needs over capitalist needs. And that is often what gets viewed through the Western lens as authoritarian, as something, you know, like, oh, they, for instance, under COVID-19, they requisitioned the factories that weren't making masks, that were making something else. And then they took them and turned them into mask factories. The state made the decision. There wasn't, and they, they made that decision in order to prioritize people's needs. And they understood what people's needs are because they have the party. So they're able to act fast and in response to kind of knowing what the objectives are for improving people's lives, they act in that interest. Like at the local level, they have elections to elect like local officials and at the highest uh, decision making body within uh, the Chinese government is the National People's Congress. And, you know, the CPC is not the same as the Chinese government. So the CPC is one of, I think, eight other party political parties in China. And but the CPC is the ruling party. So that that is part of how the the governance of China works. They also have the Chinese People's Political Consultative Conference, the CPPCC, which is an advisory body that represents kind of the leading aspects of each industry. So they make recommendations based off of a scientific approach. These are the people who are Zhongnanshan, like the hero of SARS. People like that, like people who are leaders in their industry, and they would make recommendations about what would be really great legislation. So like there are those mechanisms, for example, within Western democracy, but it takes the form of lobbyists who kind of make those same proposal recommendations, and it's mainly fueled by money. Like here, the other thing is just with the National People's Congress, like the people who are there, they're not professional legislators. They, they're just workers, basically. Yeah, another really great answer, Dave. You bring a lot of knowledge base to this episode, but more broadly, you're really demonstrating here what a country led by a communist party aims to achieve and the relationship a party has with its citizens and vice versa. Instead of falling into the common narrative that China is authoritarian, as lauded by capitalist media circles, various ones across the Western world, instead, assess how every regional hub within China administers with the centre. There is a real natural relationship and indeed many aspects of local autonomy for the governments of provinces, prefectures, county and township, the various levels of Chinese government, which all seamlessly come together with the relationship of the people and the Communist Party of China more broadly at the various levels to create a national planned economy governed by the science of Marxism-Leninism and putting labour at the forefront of national relations in a way that's beginning to really rival the West. So hopefully between me and Dave here, we've given you a few tropes to debunk the idea that China is authoritarian. Proletarian democracy works, and it's the model we should be striving for throughout the world. And look, as I also mentioned debunking Western myths, is there anything you want to add to this? We did a Hong Kong episode a year ago, but things have updated since then, the new national security laws and elsewhere. Is there anything you want to throw into that issue? I'm sure many listeners have a clear scope of what's going on in Hong Kong, but if there's anything you want to accentuate on this in terms of China's relationship with Hong Kong, etc., which might also be useful in an episode such as this? Yeah, sure. That just reminded me real quick too about how, you know, they did a recent poll in China and the US asking if they thought their country was democratic. And I think the numbers were in China, 73% of people thought it was democratic. And in the US, it was like 49%. So kind of, kind of getting funny with talking about getting to the Hong Kong piece. I mean, I mean, that just emphasizes how like how little people actually have access to and are able to hear of actual Chinese worker voices in China. Like, I think that poll comes as a shock to to Westerners. And I think that is a way to kind of understand what is also going on in Hong Kong. So the main issue with Hong Kong that's been going on with Hong Kong is is Chinese sovereignty. And one thing in the West that I think is something that the West 
has no history of really understanding is respecting other nations' sovereignty and their right to self-determination. So, and like those things get turned around a lot with the Hong Kong peace because of Hong Kong's long history of colonialism where it was a British colony. Like my, my parents grew up in Hong Kong and under British colonialism. So, you know, that's a, a personal issue for me. I've been to Hong Kong, but with Hong Kong, with the National Security Act, there's a lot of hype in the West that it's the end of Hong Kong that will just lead to more like authoritarianism and and so forth. But the the National Security Act, it's 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 super specific. The the enumerations are, you know, you can be punished for secession, subversion terrorist activities in, in in collusion with foreign countries it, it criminalizes like people who try to overthrow the Chinese the Chinese state an eye-opening piece about that is just on the international level significantly like double as many countries came out in support of China passing this national security act including Palestine so you know being able to safeguard your sovereignty to safeguard your ability to prioritize your people's needs on your own terms like that is really the underlying piece of you know what the national security laws accomplish and when they pass that and you kind of see what the fallout was in the western response for example how they found that there was two million dollars in funding for Hong Kong protesters that were enumerated that had to be, you know, frozen. That the leaders of the Hong Kong protests in this leaderless movement, but the most visible spokespeople who were meeting explicitly with US political people, like they immediately disbanded, like Demosisto, Nathan Law and the, that group. The the only other thing I'd add to it is that with the law piece, most of the Western kind of viewpoint on the National Security Act doesn't really, it doesn't really relate to what's written there. And it also totally dismisses China just defending its sovereignty. Yeah, some really good thoughts again there, Dave. I particularly like you throwing in offhand the comparison between US and Chinese democracy. The free press under capitalism doesn't really like sources that go against the narrative, even if they do come from Harvard University. But you're right, many ordinary Westerners are surprised by these independent studies because it goes against the jingoistic narrative that state-affiliated media in the capitalist world, propped up by billionaire ownership, wants to project onto its citizens. And whether that be a major university in the US concluding that China is a wholly democratic nation, or indeed a major university in Hong Kong coming down with a poll that says 69% of those participating want one country, two systems to remain. It doesn't matter. They're squashed and they're silenced because they don't fit into the Western agenda of how international relations should work and who should profit accordingly. For capitalist countries, particularly Britain may I add, to claim that it is too authoritarian for the judiciary to be ruled from the centre in Beijing is almost quite frankly laughable, considering the same arrangement happens here in the United Kingdom, where the judiciary is completely secondary and lesser than than parliamentary procedures. Even the vaguest criticism of source will start to lead you towards the correct position. And unpacking a lot of these Western myths which are completely propped up by jingoistic and ex-colonial hangovers. And look, on the subject of jingoistic and colonial hangovers, we've barely even touched upon the most pressing international issue right now in the coronavirus and how that's been depicted in the Western media. Some of the major Western state-affiliated responses have been downright outrageous on this issue with the wet markets, the Chinese people, deeply orientalist and deeply racist in their scope. So if there's anything you want to add to really debunk a lot of that, it's particularly useful in this episode and indeed very needed. Yeah, sure. So China's always maintained that China was the first to confirm and respond to the COVID-19 uh, pandemic, but it doesn't necessarily mean that that's where COVID-19 came from. And in terms of, like, that's really a question, that's a scientific question. And understanding where it came from is important, for instance, because then you can understand what the route of transmission is and you can do something to prevent that from happening in the future. 
So, you know, for instance, if we know that like factory farming leads to more, you know, dangerous diseases, like we can we can change how we how we do that and and stop that from happening. Uh, so it's really a scientific question, and the 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 desire to blame China for wet markets, which itself is a racist term. It's really just a farmers market where they sell meat outside, but just like all farmers markets, they're often outside. It it, it just wet market just connotes this kind of like foreign, distrustworthy, othering sense. So. Like that terminology itself is just used to prevent people from really empathizing with what's actually happening. And when you look at the science that's actually come out as people continue, as scientists actually continue to study where COVID-19 came from, you know, evidence shows that, for instance, now we know that the first cases weren't actually in China. They were, for a little bit, there were earlier cases in France. And now there's actually reports that COVID-19 was found as early as March 2019 in the sewers of Spain. So does that mean that we should bully Spain or bully France because uh, COVID-19 may have first arisen there? No, like pandemics are just part of like the modern human experience of life. Like it's something that happens because of how cities bring people together in close proximity, leading to more disease. So, um, and that's something, and I think this is something that China has shown with its actions. It's something that we act, that it should actually unite people to fight against this common enemy. Like it really shows how uh, fragmented, how the narrative is really aimed at splitting people uh, when they should be acting in solidarity. And instead of doing that, blaming them. And China has, through its actions, shown a lot of international solidarity. They've, they've sent their medical teams around the world. They've shared their medical practice. And practice is based on science. When they first released their handbook on handling COVID-19, uh, I think it was on the international scale, March 2020, maybe April, like that, for, that edition that was first translated was already the 11th edition of, of the handbook, which kind of shows how many iterations through the scientific method that China had gone through and using its experience to delay the onset of the pandemic through its lockdown of Wuhan. Like they're on the front lines of the disease. And it wasn't just that fighting back against the pandemic. Xi Jinping, he said that there was a people's war, like that that was the primary focus of China at the time. And they found a lot of information and they shared it. They shared the virus uh, genome sequence immediately as soon as possible uh, so that people could start making their own testing kits and using that as really the front line. And it, like just contrasting that with the U.S. For things like calling it the Chinese virus, that kind of thing really is just part of this bigger picture of Orientalism which feeds racism and xenophobia. I'll, I'll chat with people and I'll say, China did all these things. They were able to actually contain the pandemic. Like if you go to China today, you know, their economy is up, up 3.2%. So it, it did that V, that V curve because they were able to contain the pandemic. Like stores are open, people are out and about. And people say to that, that, oh, China's just lying about its numbers. China this, China that. In the US, like, just talking about the Chinese diaspora, the Chinese virus is something that most liberals and progressives will like to combat because it, especially for liberal Chinese Americans, it, it irks them, right? It, 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 it directly impacts them. Like, it's like, oh, well, I'm Chinese, but I'm not a Chinese virus. Like, that's bad for me because now people are going to look at me and treat me badly. That was definitely my experience. People walking around the street, you know, curve around me. Uh, during the the height of the pandemic. That's only one aspect of it. The other aspects of it are thinking that, you know, the CPC is just a big liar, that everything they say is an untruth, that, you know, that they're an authoritarian country. When, as we already stated, most people in China, more than in, in the U.S., think that China is a democracy. That Orientalism where you're actually listening to 
Western self-referential sources of truth about China rather than seeking truth from facts and seeing what China has done, which is through its socialist system, prioritize people through science and, you know, acted in international solidarity. You can just look at its actions like it's actually reaching out to, to workers all around the world to try and be in solidarity with them to fight a common enemy. So I, I think it's a real shame to to reduce things to a Chinese virus and like to focus on wet markets when we should really be focusing on on how we can fight together. And that that's been China's consistent message. But a lot of Western sources who seek to sow, you know, the seeds of distrust to actually help it in its US led war of aggression on China. Yeah, mate, there really is so much to take from that answer that can really debunk a lot of the Western troops. I am really sorry that you have been personally affected by this imperialistic, jingoistic narrative towards China in the midst of the coronavirus. But all of it, personally with you and more generally in the Western correspondence of this issue, paints the picture of the effects of colonialism and empire, both past and present. China is now, of course, a really proud nation, a really prosperous nation led by the Communist Party. But that colonial hangover, the eugenicist ideology, the social Malthusianist ideology, racial othering, oriental approach, particularly from the British ruling class, which I know pretty well, continues to dominate correspondence on this issue. And the downright disgusting rhetoric, like the yellow fever, like the China disease, serves a wider process, which we know throughout history. Not just to humiliate and disregard anything which doesn't fit into the Western box, quote-unquote, but also to project the worst feelings of these Western countries to deal with the coronavirus onto the great communist monster overseas. None of it stacks up when you look at China's record compared to Britain or the US in particular, but it absolves blame. It provides a distraction and indeed bites right into the divide and conquer mentality of an imperialist country in an attempt to placate national workers from fighting for their rights at home. We're not going to buy it and we deserve so much more. And actually, now we're talking about international correspondence, it might good to be also be talking about China's role in international relations and its role in the world more broadly. There's many differing opinions on the Belt and Road Initiative, for example. Some would even go as far as say China is now showing elements of being an imperialist country. And more generally, there's all kinds of opinions about China's internationalism. So if you want to take us through any of that and give your perspective, that would also be brilliant in an episode such as this. Yeah, sure thing. So... You know, just to quickly define the Belt and Road Initiative for people who have no idea about what it is. It's for for all the things that China's done in its local context in terms of building infrastructure, building a modern transportation system, and using a lot of green development technology to do so. Any kind of infrastructure project that kind of in a Chinese context, just real quick, like that's actually one of the main ways that they have been able to lead their anti-poverty initiatives. So building that infrastructure has an immediate impact in terms of changing what's possible uh, for people in order to improve their livelihoods. So they, they took that, what they applied inside China, and they are sharing it with the world. And the Unroad Initiative, there is a investment component to it. So China will be like an investment partner, for instance, and helping get these projects off the ground, as well as bringing in expertise in terms of how to build the infrastructure. And pretty much the entire developing world has signed up from Central Asia to, you know, even including Italy and throughout Africa and parts of Latin America. People who have traditionally only had the World Bank led by the West as a way to get capital now have another source and the like it can be a little complicated because china is still a developing country or now it's a middle income country they're not in this position like they're they're looking for win-win relationships and they think of that as being like a more actually even ground but it's not going to be the exploitative profits that you see from the West. And and the big picture is geopolitically connecting China to Europe. COVID-19 PPE supplies were sent from China to Italy through these chains. And it was a lot faster and a lot less expensive, uh, a lot more affordable than, you know, other means. So they, they, there's these multiple paths and there's, there's nice maps um, that you can see that kind of looks at the expanse of this. But um, in terms of like, you know, these concerns, 
about the Belt and Road Initiative, when you look at some of the projects in Africa, for instance, when like they'll make these these projects, but maybe the infrastructure project doesn't actually make money, you know, like in those cases, and they're not able to pay it off, China will actually forgive those loans. So it's kind of like, hey, we're prioritizing our relationship more than the profits. Like that's something you would never see happen in the West. And another thing that came out of the Belt and Road Initiative, trying to kind of see the benefits is, you know, the first train connecting East and West Africa was built. So you kind of see the before where, you know, resources are pouring outside of Africa's borders compared with the after where, you know, trade within Africa is actually encouraged where, you know, that kind of commerce that kind of relationships can actually grow and become stronger. And I think there's also some concerns about whether employees of these projects are, at least in the African context, whether they're African or whether they're Chinese. But when you look at the numbers, most people are actually African. Another different component of it is people choose to be part of the project. Like it's not it's not forced. It's not preceded by a coup. There's no sanctions that precede it. People just see that it's a way to get access to resources and they welcome it. And I think the Belt and Road Initiative, coming back to kind of like the big geopolitical scene, it as we're kind of seeing the U.S. decline and China rise, what you're seeing is kind of the creation of this multipolar world. And the Belt and Road Initiative is actually a way for countries that have different governing policies. Like China is doing business with countries that aren't socialists. So they have different governing ideologies. And even so, it's a way for people to have to be aligned with similar interests so that we can actually honor honor other nations' sovereignties. We can actually honor their own political process while still finding a way to, you know, seek mutual interests to find win-wins. And the Belt and Road Initiative is is a primary way of doing that. Yeah, I think that was a really important issue to get down there, Dave. I really appreciate your knowledge base in an episode such as this. It's really helpful for getting down the content. But I think you've done a really great job there to demonstrate how China's Belt and Road Initiative and indeed a relationship with China in terms of foreign policy is so different from the imperialist, extractive relationship you have with a Western colonial nation, the US Empire or the EU imperialist bloc. For the foreign policy of the People's Republic of China really seeks to uphold the principles of other nations' national sovereignty and peaceful coexistence with them, while carrying out foreign investment policies that also really benefit indigenous projects within host countries substantially. There's no turning client states into one-crop economies. There's no coup. There's no sanctions. There's no forced humiliation to make a client state to take loans on that make it impossible for them to trade out of poverty. There's absolutely no erosion of national sovereignty with this relationship, and indeed it constitutionally practices non-intervention and international connection. So it's important to lay these facts. The only thing the Belt and Road Initiative threatens is Western domination of the global South. Something to remember the next time we get bumped with the Western narrative, the next time we have a conversation about China. And look, moving away from debunking the Western narrative to talking about conversations amongst the left themselves, there will be some that would say China should be doing more to spread the cause of socialism throughout the world, more than it already does right now. I think it'd be good to get your thoughts and your perspective on this because of your knowledge base and, and the perspective you have in there within the Chiao Collective. Yeah, sure. So I'd really want to address that just from two perspectives. One is just understanding what is China's international policy. And the second one is what is China's political reality and how does that how does that affect its its approach to to those kind of things. So China's international policy is is multilateralism. You know, as a peace loving country, they have five principles mutual respect for sovereignty and territorial integrity, mutual non-aggression, non-interference in each other's internal affairs, equality and mutual benefit, and peaceful coexistence. So that's their that's their that's their international policy, more or less. And with that approach to multilateralism, it models the kind of behavior that China wants to be treated itself. 
you know, it it wishes for its sovereignty to be respected. It's seeking peaceful coexistence for these potentially revolutionary situations happening abroad from China's perspective. Um, those are questions that can be that are that are going to be settled abroad. So, and what China can do is it can through things like the Belt and Road Initiative directly improve people's ability to to get livelihoods to to increase their their access to wealth and prosperity. So that's that's one aspect. The second aspect is at this moment when China is under attack by the US, by the West, uh, what China needs now is friends, not enemies. So if China were to stick out its neck, that would certainly be actually directly hurting the Chinese people um, because there would be blowback. Like you would be supporting a risky, like supposedly you'd be supporting a risky but revolutionary group in some other some other nations. But that, and, and the international scale as a nation would certainly lead to blowback for the people who are currently in power in those nations to actually join the, the Western side and, and fight China. So the reason why China's been so successful through the Belt and Road Initiative has actually been because of kind of this policy. And you can kind of see that they are able to break sanctions to provide to provide support to nations that are socialists like Cuba or or Venezuela or these other countries that do have that that strive or Iran where they're striving for an independent path from Western domination. So this approach, I think, I would just say that it it's just seeking truth from facts. Like China's not a number one most powerful country dictating where the revolution will go that's a that's a question for other people to, to decide like even if china were to intervene you know there'd be the same questions of like well who are they supporting are they really supporting the most revolutionary group or not when you think about kind of like the nuts and bolts this kind of question in general i think falls into this bigger category of just like raising issues with china when the primary issue in the West is combating Western imperialism. All across, there's there's multiple kinds of ways to dismiss China uh, along the entire political spectrum. And the thing that they have in common is that they'll never compliment China. That, like they'll just focus on what China doesn't do and how that's inadequate, whether that's authoritarian or this or that. The other piece I would add in terms of how the Belt and Road Initiative does actually increase people's ability to fight for socialism abroad is when, through the Belt and Road Initiative, they invest and kind of bring up essentially a national bourgeois and through them a petty bourgeois. Like previously in place, you have a situation where it's more, there's more of a comprador class that's really deeply connected to uh, like Western capitalists. And instead, through the Belt and Road Initiative, you're actually developing a national bourgeois, people who class interests coincide with the development of the nation, and through them, a petty bourgeois. And just remembering from the Chinese revolutionary experience, the five-star flag of China, you've got like four stars kind of around, and like the, the big star, that actually represents the unity of classes to fight under the CPC. That's the peasants, the workers, the petty bourgeois, and the national bourgeois. So from the Chinese historical experience of successful socialist revolution, through things like the Belt and Road Initiative, through peaceful development, rather than going in and looking at everything as a war, they're actually they're actually maneuvering based on the reality of the situation to to change the class conditions and actually make it so that the forces who would be in favor of national sovereignty are actually getting stronger over time. So that's why the U.S. It's, is, is trying to fight so hard to, to defeat China, uh, which is creating new possibilities for, for socialist revolution, in, in my opinion. Yeah, there's a lot to get out of that again there, Dave. You bring a lot to a really important question when discussing China. And look, it accentuates a lot of our conversation so far, but it is true. A national working class movement, a national movement on the road to socialism 
should be settled nationally. As it has done throughout history, let's talk about the Soviet Union, Cuba, Vietnam, Venezuela and elsewhere. That doesn't mean China can't assist, because it does, as you've mentioned with all the socialist states you were talking about, and indeed through the Belt and Road Initiative, to accentuate and develop that national road to socialism overseas. But the primary concern of the Communist Party of China is the Chinese people and delivering their material needs at home. And this is a really important point to remember. Chinese enemies and the enemies of socialism on the global stage, the US empire and others, would not have a second thought of invading China in a hot war should the conditions arise. The Chinese people and indeed the international socialist movement as it stands right now with China checking and balancing the US empire in whatever way it can, cannot afford that risk. Chinese foreign policy as it stands is developing and accentuating the international movement for socialism and we should be supporting it as a result. And look, as we begin to wrap up this episode, and I really thank you for your time and your knowledge base and everything you've contributed to this really important episode, do you have any final thoughts for the listener and maybe where we could find your work or the Chiao Collector's work online or elsewhere? Just to say, China's future is socialist, people-centered, scientific, and peace-loving. They're, they're pretty clear about where they're going. They aim to achieve a Xiaokang society, a moderately prosperous society by the end of 2020. So they've, they've been on track to eliminate extreme poverty, and then they're going to eliminate regular poverty. That's something that's been possible because China's been on this path of peaceful development. And as they become stronger, they're able to resolve these contradictions where, you know, wealth was more concentrated in the urban area, and now they're able to invest a lot more in the rural area to bring health insurance to the rural area, to bring trains and everything. So that is... Something that as they get stronger, they, they'll be able to prioritize what people's needs are. They, they want to create the material conditions where something like that can be possible. And in the meantime, they're, they're managing these contradictions and moving towards investing in building the infrastructure and the capacity to, to meet people's needs. In every single aspect, China is using science to lead its policies. Like they are the leader in renewable energy in the world. They've been able to, you know, reverse desertification. People really don't understand the Chinese context in terms of how poor it was before the revolution and like how far China has come. Because before 1949, I mean, life expectancy was under 35. It's just sort of like plotting a line graph. Like China's come so far and where it's going in the future is continuing to deliver on what people's needs are. And that's going to be decided by, by the Chinese people. My first recommendation is obviously the, the Chow Collective Twitter and website. You can go to chowcollective.com. It's a great place to find. Our, our objective is first to challenge the U.S. aggression on China, and second to uplift the experience of Marxist-Leninism in China. So that's a great source uh, for people who don't know about China. I would actually just go to CGTN.com and that's their state-owned international news network. It's very factual-based and you, you get a Chinese perspective. I would also check out Tioshir, uh, which is the, the party journal, English english.qstheory.cn. If you do a search through a web engine for any topic that you're curious about. The CPC actually writes really long white papers that are super informative about its positions and how it thinks about Chinese socialism. And you can read it from the CPC itself. You don't have to trust, you know, the New York Times or the Washington Post or the Guardian. For your news about, you know, what the CPC is thinking, they, they publish it regularly all the time. You just have to sit down and read it. Yeah, some really great thoughts to round off this episode, Dave. I really appreciate your expertise and knowledge based on such a major question of our time. I'll make sure to link everything you've said there, all those links you've suggested, the Chiao Collective and others, into the show notes so they're really easily accessible for people to go and find. And more broadly, I hope people got something out of this. As I've already stated, this is the biggest international question of our time and it divides a lot of opinion across the left. I hope Dave and I have done our part to debunk a lot of the Western imperial myths that surround China. 
China's rise in the contemporary age, and how it continues to continue and accentuate the development of socialism, not only in its own borders, but outside them as well. China's role in the world is valid. It is empowering other nations, and providing an alternative to Western imperialism that we should all support as working class people throughout the world. Continue to critically engage with sources, continue to support actually existing socialist states in the contemporary age, and continue to fight for socialism at home. Until next time, workers of the world, unite.